You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street, Portland, Maine. Download past shows and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program. As much as I love dealing one-on-one with my patients, I also have this love of trying to help a larger group of people. I noticed that you're always trying to guide the patient to be as healthy as they can, but in the case of a child, you're also trying to guide the family to help make the patient as healthy and make the family unit as healthy as they can be. So I felt like I was always doing a little bit of public health all the time that I was doing pediatrics, and I thought, you know what, I'd really like to see if I could help the state of Maine not just my patients, so. But it's about teaching personal responsibility and helping people to learn that you can treat your mind, your body, and your soul um, together as a component and your primary care provider can help you work through those and we can treat you with manipulation and help uh, relieve pain without having to treat with medication which is more cost effective and more beneficial for people's bodies. The thing about melanoma that's different than other cancers is that when caught early, melanoma can be almost completely cured. I believe wholeheartedly in evidence-based medicine, but it does have some shortcomings because nobody is out there really funding the studies that need to be done. So it's hard to try to bridge the two worlds, but I do see that a little bit as my role given the, the Western medicine training. I think we kind of have to keep within the realm of comfort of Western medicine trained physicians in order to have them gain our trust that perhaps there are other modalities out there that could be helpful. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepherd Financial. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 97, Summer Wellness, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 21st, 2013. Today's guests include Dr. Chris Pizzullo and Dr. Sheila Panette of the Maine Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Deb Gerard, Executive Director of the Melanoma Foundation of New England, and Dr. Elizabeth Strawbridge of the Integrative Inpatient Medicine Program at the Maine Medical Center. Wellness is something that is spoken of often, and it's something that can take many forms. On the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, we talk about wellness from a mind, body, and spirit standpoint. Today we're getting a little bit more physical and talking about things such as Lyme disease and skin cancer prevention, but then we talk about things like acupuncture and integrative medicine. There are lots of different ways to be well, and we hope that through listening to our show, you'll incorporate some of these into your own life. Thank you for listening. I understand the importance of public health when it comes to Maine health and the health of our families, children, um, and really the environment as well. So I'm thrilled today to have with me Dr. Chris Pizzullo, who is the Medical Director for the Division of Population Health at the Maine CDC, or Centers for Disease Control, and Dr. Sheila Panette, who is the Director of the Maine Center for Disease Control. Thanks for coming in today. Thank Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. 
Now, it's also always very fun for me to have people that I have known in my past life. I was at Maine Medical Center at the same time that both of you were at Maine Medical Center. I was doing training and um, Chris, you were one of the senior residents in pediatrics when I was in the family medicine department. And I remember you with great fondness. You kept us all sane, you were great with the kids. Um, it was really, it's a crazy time when you were a resident. So when you get a good senior resident, it means so much. So thank you for being part of my education. You got it, thank you. Thank you for saying that. And it's good to reconnect with you. And then Dr. Panette, you actually, you and I interacted because, again, as a family medicine resident, um, we worked with some of the high-risk OB team, and you were part of the high-risk OB team back then. That's right. So this lot seems like a lifetime ago. It does. <laughs> <laughs> Still but the same are. lifetime, though, yeah? It's all about the journey, and we're moving forward. Well, tell me how it is that you went from um, doing largely hospital-based work. And I know in your case, Chris, you were a resident. So, of course, there's hospital-based, and then you do outpatient pediatrics. You know, most people choose that as a career. Um, but both of you started out in the, in the hospital and more acute uh, in the more acute setting, especially maternal fetal medicine, very high-risk OB. You've gone from that to outpatient and now doing public health. Each of you has a slightly different version of this journey. Talk to me about that. Well, actually, um, I was part of the maternal fetal medicine program. My husband, Dr. Michael Panette, and I were recruited back to Maine in 1989 to help um, further develop the perinatal outreach program as well as to develop the maternal fetal medicine program. And in 1996, I went back to school at the University of New England and um, made a decision to do an internal medicine residency, which I did at Maine Medical Center. And then I started my own private practice in uh, Cape Elizabeth, where I could have have um, easy access to my children. Um, by then I had five kids and so <laughs> I wanted to be able to try to keep everything in balance and so that's why I um, stuck to outpatient medicine um, and I really had a big passion about helping people to live a healthy life um, and to combat chronic diseases um, by helping with healthy nutrition counseling and exercise. So I had been in, in private pa practice as a pediatrician after I left residency. I'd stayed in Portland the whole time. I had worked for Mercy Primary Care and then I worked for University Healthcare. What I noticed though is that as much as I love dealing one-on-one -on -one with my patients, I also have this love uh, of trying to help a larger group of people. And one of the things I noticed about pediatrics, and I think probably the same for family practice and internal medicine, is that you are kind of, even though you have a single patient, you're often working with the team, and the team is the family, especially in pediatrics. And um, I noticed that you're always trying to guide the patient to be as healthy as they can, but in the case of a child, you're also trying to guide the family to help make the patient as healthy and make the family unit as healthy as they can be. So. I felt like I was always doing a little bit of public health all the time that I was doing pediatrics. So it was when this uh, job became available uh, last winter, I kind of jumped at the chance to try something a little different. I had done, you know, um, primary care peds for almost 18 years. That means I'm pretty old. And, um, and I thought, you know what, I'd really like to see if I could help the state of Maine, not just my patients. So. And I think it's the same for me. I was given the opportunity to work with Commissioner Mayhew of the Department of Health and Human Services and Governor Paula Page um, with the change of administration. And it was truly a great honor and privilege to be asked to be a part of the administration. And um, I thought this was a great opportunity to, for me to move forward and continue to um, express my passion to help care for all the people in Maine, to preserve, promote, and protect the health and safety of people in Maine. 
both of you have a connection with the University of New England, which is Maine's only medical school. We have contracts out with different other um, allopathic medical schools out of state, but this is Maine's only medical school. That must make you feel pretty proud. We are very proud. Um, UNE has been recognized as one of the leading um, medical schools, both allopathic and osteopathic, and um, um, taking care of rural health and primary care patients, geriatric patients, as well as being one of the leading um, primary care um, medical schools for training. Um, Sir Edward Koop um, often told people that as a Surgeon General of the United States, UNE was one of the top medical schools and was a um, great role model for other schools, medical schools. And actually his daughter wound up going to school there. Um, so I've been involved with UNE, you know, ever, ever since I graduated in 93. This is actually my 20th anniversary anniversary year, which we're getting ready for the for the big uh, party in October. But I've been amazed at how UNE has grown over the years. Um, I don't know if you know the story about the blue chairs, but when we were there, um, it had been sort of still in its infancy, and it was in the small building called Stella Maris, and there were these hard plastic blue chairs that you sat on eight or nine hours a day, and it was crazy. And now they have this Alphonse Center, which is this gorgeous state-of-the-art building um, that the students take Just their so classes you know, in. Just so my class was the first class in 1996 <laughs> to sit in those beautiful chairs. Lucky. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we feel, and my husband, who's a Dartmouth Medical School grad, oftentimes says, your education is second to none, and you have state-of-the-art um, educational facilities. Yeah. That's true. UNE really does have a beautiful campus. And they also have... Um, I think a very forward-thinking approach to health and public health. I'm, I've, I always was impressed with, I guess, the more holistic take on health and wellness that osteopathic medicine was really beginning to have before even the allopathic physicians were thinking about it. And now, of course, largely allopathic and osteopathic have the same training, except there's still this holistic um, an osteopathic manipulative medicine approach that right. that we right. don't have. Right, and and truly, it's not holistic in terms of um, feeding you vitamins, but it's about teaching personal responsibility and helping people to learn that you can treat your mind, your body, and your soul um, together as a component, and your primary care provider can help you work through those, and we can treat you with manipulation and help uh, relieve pain without having to treat with medication, which is more cost-effective and more beneficial for people's bodies. Yeah. I mean, one of the thoughts around osteopathic medicine is that the body really has lots of ways to heal itself. So there's, you know, it's sort of like, how do you get back in touch with your own healing mechanisms? And when you learn to take a history, which is like a big component of all medical schools, um, at osteopathic medical schools, the history really is about body, mind, and spirit history, not just what's the history of your symptom. So it's, it just, it opens up so, it's such a much richer relationship with the patient, I think, is what develops with osteopathic medicine. And I think, you know, as, as Dr. Panette mentioned that, um, having manual medicine as a tool that you didn't have to, you know, go and get some special training and that was part of your training is not only were you doing all the things that you do in every medical school, but you, you were also learning manual medicine and how you could help their bodies heal themselves. Well, you've gone from um, helping individuals and helping their bodies heal themselves to helping families, and now you're talking about helping communities and helping the communities basically help themselves. You're talking about public health, and even though it's called the main centers for disease control, really it's not d disease control so much as disease prevention and um, really trying to keep things healthy here in the state. So describe to me what is the Centers for Disease Control in Maine and what are your roles within it? 
Well, actually, as the director of the Maine Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the prevention part is um, also part of our um, title. Um, we um, take care of a population of 1.3 million, plus all those people who um, come to Maine in the summertime. Um, our population actually triples. Um, it's to preserve, promote, and protect the health and safety of all residents of Maine. Uh, we um, help to protect the air you breathe, the water you drink, uh, protect you from um, disease outbreaks, um, educate. We're all about hyper-awareness and prevention. And primary prevention in population health is where you get your biggest bang for your buck to have a healthier society. And I think, especially in my division, which is the Division of Population Health, so that includes ish, you know, um, issues and, and uh, illnesses like cancers, cardiovascular disease, asthma, but it also contains the maternal child health program, so children with special health needs. Um, it's really more about prevention very often in, in my division. And so it's really CDCP, right? Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And I think um, it's about how do you help patients and also their providers um, help those patients to default to, um, to living in a way that makes them as healthy as possible for the longest period possible. So how do you guide them what to eat? How do you guide them how to be physically active? Um, and how do you guide them to, you know, to, to make sure that they're using their medications appropriately or have access to the, the correct trainings for how to use those medications? So it's really a much broader approach than the way a primary care physician would just deal with their one patient. And I think, too, we have to remember our um, social disparities. I mean, by bringing our population up and through collaboration and partnership with both the private sector as well as, um, you know, the federal government, we're able to um, not only deal with our racial and ethnic minorities, but women and children who are one of our most vulnerable populations. From having had Deb Dietrich from Maine Health on the show before and other people in the public health field, I know that we have quite a large population of people who are um, served by the Maine care system. And we, I, and we also know that we have quite a lot of people who are unemployed, who live in rural, state, uh, rural parts of the state. So reaching these different groups must be somewhat challenging given um, just the broad array of needs. Um, I'm so pleased that you brought up Deb Dietrich. She truly is a um, pioneer in uh, public health in the state and really is a guru. And um, she is a huge supporter of the Maine CDC and Maine Health and all the work that they do. Um, the way we um, have designed uh, the Maine CDC is that we are uh, infrastructure that is centralized but has decentralized office. So we have eight public health offices um, where at each public health office we have a regional epidemiologist, a public health nurse, we have a district liaison, we have a health inspector, um, so that these people help to serve those particular districts based on their geographic needs, because truly geographic um, barriers exist in all different parts of our state, and our socioeconomic base is very different up north as opposed to down south, and so um, these people help to address those needs in the way that um, they need to do it for the people there. Yeah, and you know, uh, right now, for example, I'm taking part in some stakeholder meetings. Um, there are meetings that are occurring right now around what are we going to look at for how can we improve health in the, I call it the short long term, like over the next five years, how are we going to help the health of Maine and change sort of the trajectory? And so these meetings are occurring with stakeholders around particular issues, and I happen to be attending um, the meetings related to obesity in the state of Maine. And so one of the things that I can speak to is that it's great to have thought leaders from all different regions of the state because 
you know, I live in southern Maine, and it's very easy, and, and I would say before I worked at the CDC in Augusta, it was very easy to be very southern Maine-centric. And you start to assume that the access to things um, is similar around the state, but my eyes have been opened in the past year, um, that there are a lot of people who don't have access. And it's not just about financial access. It may be tr transportation access. It may be that in their county, there are zero to one, you know, types of providers for that particular care and they have to travel three or four hours to go for care i mean coming from southern maine that seems like wow but it's the same state we all live in this state and this state has a lot of disparity when it comes to the size and really the rurality of this state very very different from even the other new england states we'll return to our program in a moment on the dr lisa radio hour and podcast we've long understood the important link between health and wealth here to speak more on the subject is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. A friend of mine was at a summer cocktail party with another advisor. Gather around the fire, conversation was buzzing. Given the opportunity, the advisor asked if the partiers knew their number. You know, the one that's supposed to tell you how much money you need to be happy? Needless to say, it killed the conversation. You're not a number, you're a person. You want to use your money to make things work, to save what needs saving, even if it means spending investments. You want to leverage your resources to do great things with your gifts. You're complex, and the number you're supposed to know, it isn't important or real. You're what's important. To learn more about the relationships you can have with money, go to www.shepherdfinancialmain.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial, member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines, carefully prepared by experienced professionals, coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be. It's summertime, and with the summer comes certain public health considerations. Um, we, of course, have the great outdoors. We have what comes with the great outdoors, things like ticks and other things that we call vector-borne illnesses. Talk to me a little bit about that, and what are some of the things that people need to be thinking about during the summer when it comes to their health and the health of their communities? Dr. Lisa, thanks so much for bringing that up because our role at the CDC is to certainly educate and um, develop hyper-awareness about the risk of um, tick-borne illnesses such as Lyme disease, anaplasmosis, and Babesii. Babesii is a parasite. Um, we had 12 reported cases last year, 52 cases of anaplasmosis. Those two oftentimes go unrecognized, but they're carried by the same tick, Ixodia scapularis, um, or otherwise known as the deer tick. Um, the deer tick is 
is uh, found on the eastern coastal and the northern areas of central United States, Michigan, Wisconsin. Um, Maine was noted as being endemic last year where we identified the tick in every single county, 16 counties, as well as identified the disease. We had 1,111 cases reported. Um, that means there's also a lot that go unrecognized. So we urge people to make sure that you do daily tick checks, make sure children, especially moms, are checking their heads behind their ears, around their belt line and they're growing. Make sure you're wearing long sleeves, light colored clothing, long pants, tuck your pants into your socks. And you can use DEET if um, you're over the age of three. Make sure you read your directions. If you're a little more holistic, you can use oil of lemon uh, eucalyptus. Um, and um, pericardian is also an option. Um, and make sure that you vaccinate your pets because they can get Lyme disease. We do not have a vaccine for adults. Um, and if you're setting up stuff outside, make sure your furniture is closer to the home and that you might put wood chips down so that you can have a barrier between the woods and your lawn. And what about things like West Nile virus? Is this something that's, that we need to be thinking about? Absolutely. West Nile virus and eastern um, equine encephalitis are um, mosquito-borne viruses from dead birds. Um, last year, we had seven reported pools in Cumberland County, um, York County. Um, and um, we actually identified in October our first case of West Nile virus that caused a neuroinvasive disease. 20% um, of people, or one in five, will develop symptoms. So oftentimes, benign presentation with West Nile virus, but it's usually field, uh, a fever, low-grade, uh, malaise, arthralgias. Um, more like a flu-like symptoms, but they don't go away. Um, and then uh, we um, know that about 10% will go on to develop neuroinvasive disease and of that 1% mortality. Eastern equine encephalitis, we have identified um, in deer two years ago, and last year in September, we identified in a flock of pheasants. So we know that it's here in the state, and we really want to caution people not to be out during early mornings, dawn, and evening at dusk. Make sure in August and um, September that you're wearing long sleeves, light clothing, and especially our athletes who are out in preseason, that you're making sure you're wearing um, bug sprays to help prevent against that. And um, for children, when you have them out, make sure there's netting. Make sure you're taking care of those tire swings and those pots that have water because that's where mosquitoes breed. We do not have a vaccine. Um, vaccines are found for horses and animals, but the dose is six times. So please don't use animal vaccine for yourself. We hope that in the next six years, um, we will have a vaccine. So right now, it's just about education and awareness. Dr. Bazzullo, in your practice, I know you see a lot of children, and you mm -hmm. see children who are um, in either in the midst of a sports season, getting ready for a sports season. In the summer, a lot of kids are doing summer sports and they're thinking about the fall sports season. Is there something that kids need to be thinking about and their parents when it comes to exercising in the heat? Okay. Just a few tips for people who are out trying to, um, to enjoy the summer exercise and exercise in the summer. Oh, sure. So how about hydrate? Let's make sure that they sort of are doing double the amount of fluids that they would have in the winter. And how about sunscreen? So although I'm very concerned that people have very low vitamin D often in Maine in the winter, we don't really have to worry about that in the summer. So what we have to worry about more is skin protection and preve prevention of future skin cancers. And it's very hard for young people to understand that what they do now may affect what's gonna happen to them 30 years from now. So I really encourage them to apply sunscreen uh, just prior to, to being outside for long periods of time and to reapply every two hours. How's that? So Dr. Lisa, I guess you can see that Dr. Chris and I will be able to 
uh, fill in anytime you need help. <laughs> the, the you want to go on vacation? Doctor Christo. <laughs> okay. You guys are just ready yeah. to take over my role, which you know what is great. This makes me feel great because what it tells me is that you're so passionate, enthusiastic about um, public health, and you want to get the message out there, and you want really you're very effective at kind of helping people to understand what it is that they need to do to keep themselves and their communities healthy. So you represent the state very well. Thank you. Thank you. I do appreciate your coming in and talking with us today. We've been speaking with Dr. Chris Bazzullo, who is the Medical Director for the Division of Population Health at the Maine Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and Dr. Sheila Panette, who is the Director of the Maine Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Thanks so much for all the work that you do and for being um, part of our show today. Thank you for Thank, giving us Thanks the for time. having us, Lisa. Thank you. the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that our listeners enjoy their own work lives to the same extent we do and fully embrace every day. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine to help me with my own business and to help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. I like to think that I live a healthy lifestyle. I keep active, work out with my husband, make certain my kids eat well and exercise. I want everyone to be healthy and do all that I can to make sure that they stay that way. It makes me think about what I can do to make certain my clients' businesses stay healthy too. So periodically throughout the year, a financial checkup is in order to do an assessment and make certain there are no hidden symptoms that would cause a decline in business or financial health. No matter what business you're in, make sure that you have your financial health checked regularly. Be proactive. So many people in your life depend on you to keep financially fit. I'm Marcy Booth. Let's talk about the changes you need. BoothMaine.com. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic Navy Anchor Tote to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind nautical-inspired pieces. Please visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. It's very important that we all be comfortable with the skin we're in, and it's equally important that we are having nice, healthy, glowing skin, which is something that Deb Gerard wants us all to have. Deb Gerard is the executive director of the Melanoma Foundation of New England, and she's been working pretty hard to help us all to have healthy skin lives. Mostly, Lisa, we would like people to love the skin that they have. Um, and that is um, a very big issue, uh, not only in Maine, but around the country right now, as we um, are talking about the dangers of tanning. Uh, and that's tanning both outdoors and um, more importantly right now uh, in tanning beds. Uh, because, uh, as you all know, in Maine, the issue of 
banning tanning beds for kids under the age of 18 has been a very charged issue. Uh, and clearly now we have a mandate to increase the education that we do to build awareness about the dangers of tanning. Well, I want to talk about tanning. I also want to start with talking about melanoma because I know there's different types of skin cancer. And for people who are listening, um, I think it might be helpful for you to give us a little bit of background. So uh, this year in this country, about three and a half million people will have skin cancer. Now, some of those are not malignant skin cancers, basal cell cancers, and squamous cell cancers account for the largest number of non-malignant skin cancers. Uh, And while they can be extremely disfiguring, and some percent of squamous cell cancers can uh, get worse, the majority of the ones that we're most worried about are about the 76,000 new cases of melanoma we will um, have diagnosed this year. So about one person every 50 minutes dies of malignant melanoma. And, um, and so we're spending a lot of time at the foundation trying to build awareness about the dangers of, that ultraviolet radiation play in the development of melanoma, but also really um, to get people to have their skin checked. Uh, Because the thing about melanoma that's different than other cancers is that when caught early, melanoma can be uh, almost completely cured. In this information that you brought, you gave me a card, and on the card it says, know your moles. Know your moles. Talk to me about that. One of the things that we know is that everybody needs to um, check their skin. You do other checks of your body, whether it's breast, whether you do breast self-detection or other self-detections. So we would say, um, check your skin. Your skin is your largest organ. And um, it's very important to know about things that are new and changing on your body. And one of the things that we do um, is to ask you to look at the things that might be new or evolving. And uh, those might be moles and lesions that you ask a healthcare professional to take a look at. And that's the warning sign. New, evolving, uh, itchy, bleeding, uh, dark, and for people who have lots of moles, we, um, we use the ugly duckling rule. And that just means that if you have a mole in your mass of moles that looks different, that's changing, that, the, that you really do need to have a health professional take a look at that. You also provide the mnemonic, um, well, it's not exactly a, a mnemonic, but it's A, B, C, D, and E. A, B, C, D, and E, and, and really, um, when we use that with folks, we're asking you to look at a mole in different ways. The A is for asymmetry. So if you were able to fold a mole in half, would the sides meet? Um, Border irregularity. So if um, you have a very jagged edge mole, that would be something more concerning than, um, than one that isn't. Color. Variation is the C, 
And really, melanomas come in all different colors. We tend to think that they're dark, that there might be multiple shade variations through a mole. But you know, there are melanomas that have no pigmentation or are very light. So really what we're looking at are uh, color variations within a mole and diameter. So if you have a mole or a lesion that's the size of the tip of a pencil, um, a, a tip pencil eraser, then that's something that you should have somebody take a look at. An E, which is a sort of new addition to ABCD, is evolution. Anything that continues to grow or change, you should have checked. And using those ABCDE rules can really help you spot something that can be checked and taken care of by your healthcare professional. Deb, is there anything specific that the Melanoma Foundation is doing to educate teenagers and college students about um, tanning beds and staying safe? It's a great question and one that I love to answer. We have a really great program called Your Skin Is In. We've been doing this program for several years and many schools in Maine have taken part of it. Our goal is to educate high school kids about the dangers of tanning and particularly around prom time. Uh, prom tanning has become as important as buying a dress and uh, getting their shoes. So we would, we'd love to try to provide education at that time so that kids can understand that the skin they have is the most important thing that they have for the prom. Uh, and we also do this program for college students around um, the dangers of tanning before spring break. So we provide an educational program for both teens and young adults and a really great pledge program that allows them to pledge not to tan and also to take part in a, uh, a program that will let them win money for their school proms and for their spring breaks. So we are really encouraging uh, teachers and, and school nurses and principals to get their schools involved in this program. You have an interesting program called the Skinny on Skin. We do. Well, it's a very creative way of trying to get people to pay attention to skin. It is, and I think that one of the things that we believe, you know, I told you a little bit earlier that there were gonna be three and a half million skin cancers diagnosed this year. Who's gonna diagnose all of those things? Who's gonna look at all of those moles? It's a lot to think that primary care physicians, dermatologists are gonna do all of that. And we need to have a paradigm shift here. Um, and that people who are looking at your skin regularly in places that you can't see really need to be trained to do two things. One is to have the conversation about the ABCDEs so that not only are they looking at their own skin, they're looking at yours, and that they learn to talk to their clients about what they're seeing. And so over the past year, uh, we have been working on a pilot study to um, go out and train about 40 salons in the Boston area. And we've been doing pre and post testing to look to see if it changes, in fact, the way a stylist relates to their client. Are they talking to them more? Are they actually looking at their scalps on a regular basis? 
this um, project actually came out of a study that was published in the New England Journal about a year ago, uh, done by Alan Geller through the Harvard School of Public Health and a young medical resident, uh, Betsy Bailey. And Betsy's mother had a melanoma diagnosed in her scalp by her hairstylist in Houston. And Betsy then began to really take a look at training stylists in that area. And so they came to us and said, could you help us design a program? So over the last year, that's what we've been working on, developing some training for hairstylists. And our goal will be to get to um, using an e-learning program where stylists would find um, a training program that um, may come through a hair product company. It may come through their salon, multiple ways. And um, so our goal this uh, for the spring is um, to have three launch events. And uh, we have had our first launch event in Lewiston. And uh, we had 70 stylists uh, uh, for that program. And they were so incredibly interesting because I would say that about a third of those people clearly had already seen suspicious moles and lesions on their clients' heads. Some of them reported that they were able to talk with them. Several of them reported that they their client had a melanoma. So we see success for this kind of program is really being the consistency of which stylists are looking. The best time to look at your scalp is when it's wet. And we can't see our own scalps, we can't see the back of our heads, we can't see our necks, but your stylist can. And um, what we've also seen is that stylists are very excited about the possibility of really being regarded as people who can impact prevention in this way. So um, we are working at our next uh, launch event, which will be in Boston at the end of May, and then we'll also be in Manchester, New Hampshire in July to continue to spread the word and to build um, a group of constituents. There's been a little bit of controversy about um, vitamin D, and especially in the northern latitudes. Um, I'm sure that this is something that you've talked about with people before. What is your take on the vitamin D, need for vitamin D, and the fact that we get it mostly from the sun? Well, um, I think that there are a couple issues about vitamin D. And one of the fallacies is that the longer time you spend in the sun, the more vitamin D you get, when in fact uh, your body can only manage about 15 minutes of uh, vitamin D at a time. So that when you're going to the grocery store, when you're walking to the mailbox in the course of a day, if you're getting 15 minutes, that's really what your body is going to absorb. So we would say going to a tanning bed is not a way to get vitamin D. Tanning bed operators would like us to believe that. It's just not true. So if you are vitamin D deficient, and we live in New England, many, many, many people are vitamin D deficient. Eat a fortified diet. Talk to your doctor and make sure you have vitamin, you know, the next time you go, have your vitamin D checked if you're worried about it. And it's much safer to take a vitamin D supplement than it is to extend the amount of time that you have in the sun. How can people find out about the Melanoma Foundation of New England? 
we'd love you to go to our website. It's uh, mfne.org. And you'll find a lot of information there, both about our programs for teens and young adults, for our programs for hairstylists, um, and you'll be able to meet uh, many young melanoma survivors on our webpage as they share their stories uh, and what their journeys have been with their own um, battle with melanoma. We're very privileged that you have taken the time to drive up from Boston. This is clearly a very important topic for um, for you, Deb, and also for the Melanoma Foundation of New England. We really appreciate your being in touch and agreeing to come up and um, talk with the people of Maine about melanoma and skin cancer in general. And we do hope that people will go to your website to find out more. Um, we've been speaking with Deb Gerard, who's the executive director of the Melanoma Foundation of New England. Thank you for all the work you're doing. You're welcome. The goal of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour is to help make connections between the health of the individual and the health of the community. The goal of Ted Carter-inspired landscapes is to deepen our appreciation for the natural world. Here to speak with us today is Ted Carter. When I enter a home or a business, I try to instantly understand their long-term commitment to the property. If the move is going to be in the next two or three years, I would approach a landscape design situation completely differently than if they were to make a long-term commitment for many, many, many years ahead. I delve deeply into the understanding of how people actually live in their house or which rooms they use. What do you see from the interior perspective or look out onto? I also would try to understand what kind of play activities would be here. Are there children in the picture? Are there aging parents in the picture? What are the colors and textures and fragrances that most call to you? What are some of the plant materials that you recall from your earliest memories as a child? These are all things that personalize a space and make a space uniquely your own. I'm Ted Carter. And if you'd like to contact me, I can be reached at tedcarterdesign.com. We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendinitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077. At the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we believe we are helping to build a better world with the help of many. We like to bring to you people who are examples of those building a better world in the areas of wellness, health, and fitness. To talk to you today about one of these, fitness, is Jim Greterix, the president of Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical. Here's Jim. Black Bear Medical is Maine's premier medical equipment provider for over 25 years. We have a great selection of seat lift chairs, power and manual mobility devices, walking aids, home accessibility solutions such as stair glides and ramps, and products to make your bathroom safer. If you or a loved one have needs to remain independent at home, 
come in and meet with our experienced staff at Black Bear Medical down on 275 Marginal Way in Portland and see why we are Maine's number one choice for home medical equipment. I'm Jim Greatorex, president of Black Bear Medical. Come on in and see our trained staff down at 275 Marginal Way and at www.blackbearmedical.com. As listeners of our show know, I am a big fan of integrative medicine and, in fact, have practiced integrative medicine myself and done acupuncture and traditional Chinese medicine and nutrition counseling, lifestyle work with my patients for many years. So it is a great privilege to be able to spend time with another physician who actually trained in the same program that I did at Maine Medical Center and the Maine Medical Center Family Medicine Department, um, who is out doing integrative medicine, but in a slightly different way. Today I have with me Dr. Liz Strawbridge, who offers integrative medicine and acupuncture consults right here at Maine Medical Center in Portland. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Liz, you went further beyond the family medicine training, and you actually did an integrative medicine fellowship um, also here at Maine Medical Center. Tell me what that was like. You know, it was actually a huge breath of fresh air. It was. It felt kind of like coming home. Um, throughout my entire medical training, I always felt like it was a little bit too cold and impersonal, and that the mystery of um, health and healing was removed. I mean, that's kind of the goal of our medical training is pure objectivity. So anything that was left to uh, the unknown was um, not very important. And to me, I found that to be the most um, interesting and exciting and creative part of health and life is that mystery. And so going back and studying integrative medicine, which really just means incorporating all sorts of different healing modalities and cultural ways of healing into our um, you know, perspective, has really... Um, I think, fulfilled what I was looking for when I went into medicine in the first place. Listeners of our show have heard our interviews with Dr. Craig Schneider, who's the director of the Integrative Medicine Program, and also Dr. Stephen Donnelly, and how they've created their own integrative medicine um, approaches. Yours is slightly different in that yours is inpatient versus outpatient, and inpatient means in the hospital. Mm -hmm. So what types of things can you offer people in the hospital that you might not be able to do in the outpatient setting? Um, there are a few things. In the inpatient setting, people are usually in higher states of acuity, so their illnesses are, um, they're, they're suffering a little bit more uh, strongly with their illnesses or um, came in for something like a heart attack for the first time. So people, I think, are both more vulnerable and possibly open to alternative ways of healing. And also, I think they're more motivated to change because they have likely undergone some strong, you know, um, attack to their health. And they are in a place where they're ready uh, for new ideas, ready for dietary and lifestyle changes where uh, they might not be ready to take that step uh, just in the outpatient setting. Uh, so I found that working on the inpatient um, wards has been really rewarding, uh, especially doing some of the alternative techniques like uh, acupuncture, hypnotherapy, guided imagery, breathing techniques. Uh, people really respond well and sometimes more powerfully than I, I felt like they responded when I was doing outpatient medicine. 
Um, the other thing that has been really wonderful being in the hospital is um, broadening the perspective of other practitioners, uh, whether it's physicians, nurses, uh, you know, the whole culture of the hospital has been very open and welcoming, but also um, really have been curious because a lot of them have not been exposed to integrative medicine. And so I think in some respects, it's been uh, very educational for our healthcare community in general. In the outpatient setting, most people who seek out integrative medicine are already uh, kind of on the path to uh, wellness in some respects. So when people are um, kind of surprised to see me walking around in the inpatient setting, I feel like, okay, I'm spreading, spreading the word. When I was a resident at Maine Medical Center, they were offering osteopathic consultations mm -hmm. with Dr. Brian Beck, and I understand there's been another osteopathic physician who has joined him. Mm -hmm. And they were also starting to offer Reiki, mm -hmm. um, which is not exactly healing touch, but there is an energetic component to it. So there was a little bit of a, an entree for you. Mm -hmm. Was there any problem at all getting the people in the administration or within the family medicine department to embrace the type of work that you wanted to offer in the hospital? Um, I was really lucky because I'd been practicing in the outpatient setting amongst other family doctors. Um, I was able to kind of gain their trust earlier on. And I think having been a resident in the family medicine program and um, know a lot of the doctors at Maine Med, uh, especially Ann Skelton, who was very helpful in getting me credentialed to, to work in the hospital. Uh, I was lucky from that perspective, and I don't know if I had been in another community or, or tried to do this in another community where um, I didn't know a lot of the uh, local physicians if this would have been a possibility. So um, I'm very lucky for that, and certainly Dr. Beck has paved the way. Uh, he's been doing this for several years and you know, started off with very few patients, and now he has, you know, a list that he can barely get done by 6 p.m. at night. So he's really uh, paved the way and has gotten the attention of a lot of uh, doctors that there are other ways of treating pain and, and um, many common problems that we often reach for pharmaceuticals. In looking at the curriculum of the Integrative Medicine Program out of the University of Arizona, which is the program that Maine Medical Center is affiliated with, mm -hmm. it is very evidence-based. And some people have had concerns about things that are quote-unquote unproven, but the reality is more and more of this is proven. Mm -hmm. We're taking what has been known in some way anecdotally for a long time and now kind of getting the research to back it up. Yeah, exactly. And you know, some things that aren't proven, there's a very low risk profile. So um, Dr. Weil and the University of Arizona, their um, perspective, and I agree with it, is if there's the potential for great benefit and there's very low or minimal or zero risk, um, but there isn't an, a randomized control study about it, uh, then because of the low risk, then I would say it's worth a trial for the patient if there's a possibility that it might be helpful. Um, but certainly, I try to uh, fit into the mold of evidence-based integrative medicine. And when I see patients in the inpatient setting, uh, in my notes, I usually document references of studies that have been done or um, just say there aren't any studies on this, but there is very little chance of um, harm being done. Uh, so that patients and other physicians who read my notes are aware uh, of the data that's out there. 
I think, um, I believe wholeheartedly in evidence-based medicine, but it does have some shortcomings because um, nobody is out there really funding the studies that need to be done. So um, it's, it's hard to kind of try to bridge the two worlds. Um, but I do see that a little bit as my role, given the, the Western medicine training. Um, it, I think we kind of have to um, keep within the realm of uh, comfort of Western medicine trained physicians in order to um, have them gain our trust that perhaps there are other modalities out there that could be helpful. What types of problems do you find that you're most effective with in the inpatient setting? Uh, it's interesting. I kind of have things seem to come in waves. And I remember this happened even as a medical student or resident that all of a sudden we'd get a ton of patients with pneumonia or, you know, stroke and, and you, you just see things in clusters. And um, currently I've been doing a lot of work with pediatric oncology patients. Um, there's, you know, so much that can be done uh, in the alternative world for them, including a lot of mind-body therapies. Uh, I do acupressure with uh, tuning forks. So um, for kids who are needle-averse or anybody who's, who doesn't want needles for acupuncture, I use acupressure points and use uh, sound healing with uh, tuning forks on the points. And that's actually very relaxing. Um, I do a lot of diet and nutrition uh, counseling as well as exercise um, and mind-body work such as yoga. Um, and what I try to do is create a whole treatment plan for patients so that when they leave the hospital, they have a document um, that goes through all these different modalities and gives them an outline of a diet or a plan for an exercise program, um, as well as if I recommend yoga or tai chi, I'll give them the contact information websites that I would recommend for them to to see or if it's self-hypnosis or guided imagery I will again you know connect them with resources so that they can continue these strategies that we begin in the hospital and and continue them as a, a whole lifestyle change when they leave um, so really as I was saying I see a gamut of things and you know for a while I was seeing a lot of cystic fibrosis patients um, irritable bowel, inflammatory bowel, migraines, insomnia, fibromyalgia, post-operative pain, nausea and vomiting associated with chemo. So it kind of runs pretty much any diagnosis is amenable to integrative techniques, but those are the, the ones that I've seen the most. And I think the other practitioners in the hospital uh, really think of, uh, when they think of me, uh, it's often in the context of how to control their patient's pain. Um, so that's probably been the number one uh, reason for a consultation. You're about a year into this, I think? Uh, about seven months, six okay, or seven, seven months. months into it. Yes. And it's always hard the first year. Some would say even hard the first five years. Yes. What are some of the lessons that you've learned from doing this very different thing that most doctors wouldn't even think that they had the training to do? Um, one thing th that has been so important is just facing a lot of my fears. Uh, I think it's it's really hard to be um, the fish sort of swimming in the wrong direction <laughs> in, in the hospital. So I've I've spent a lot of time really trying to back up what I um, what I preach. So like I said, I I always reference uh, studies, and I'm really trying to 
fit into the world of the physicians. And that's that's been a little bit um, challenging for me. And I've had to uh, kind of gather a little bit of courage when I recommend an herb and, and you know, I, I feel like I have to explain it and also ensure that it won't interact with any other medicines and show the data and really try and, um, you know, hold up my torch so that it, it withstands uh, the, the questions and, and skepticism of, of some of the physicians. Um, the second thing I think that's really been really important is um, fake it till you make it. And, you know, we did a, uh, in part of the integrative medicine training, we did something called laughing yoga, where you just start laughing and as sort of you're faking laughing. And then before you know it, you're hysterically laughing for real. And some of the things I had studied a lot of the guided imagery and hypnosis, um, but when you're starting, no matter what you're starting, you want to come across as a, an expert. And so um, now I, I've been doing this for several years, and I feel like I'm uh, very comfortable. But in the beginning, I had to pretend a little bit. And I think that was, uh, that's, I'm now hysterically laughing for real, but it was hard in the beginning to really feel like an expert. I think every doctor goes through that in, in any shape anyway. You sort of have the imposter syndrome. Um, people expect you, they call you doctor all of a sudden. You know, you were a medical student one day, a doctor the next, and what happened except one, you know, one night's sleep. So I think, uh, I think that's a common theme in, in, in medical practice in general. But certainly it's felt uh, a little bit more powerful now that I'm doing something very different in a very mainstream um, world. Well, I encourage people to go to your website, healmain.com, mm-hmm. and find out more about the integrative medicine and acupuncture consults that you're offering at Maine Medical Center. We've been speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Strawbridge. Thank you for coming in, and thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 97, Summer Wellness airing for the first time on Sunday, July 21st, 2013. Our guests today have included Dr. Chris Pizzullo and Dr. Sheila Panette, Deb Gerard, and Dr. Elizabeth Strawbridge. For more information on our guests, visit doctorlisa.org. Also, be aware that the interviews that you hear are shortened versions of our entire conversation. You'll want to hear the entire conversation, so again, we encourage you to go to doctorlisa.org and listen in. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, D-O-C-T-O-R-Lisa, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, bountiful-blog.com. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that you have enjoyed our summer wellness show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine. Marcy Booth of Booth, Maine, Apothecary by Design, Premier Sports Health, a division of Black Bear Medical, 
Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of Remax Heritage, Ted Carter Inspired Landscapes, and Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Leanne Wiemet. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org.